Okay, good morning. Surely people are out traveling, <laughs> doing other stuff this long weekend. Uh, I hope that's why they're not here. Uh, you know, uh, I really appreciate the, the new worship team we had up here, you know, and Steve getting involved, and we, that's uh, it's really important now. Uh, you know, uh, everybody's got a little different style, and I appreciate that, that new rendition of that old hymn. Uh, I got to say, though, every time I hear that hymn, I think of one of my favorite personalities, Dr. J. Not Julius Irvin, the basketball player, but Dr. J. Vernon McGee. He played that at the beginning of every one of his broadcasts, and every, yeah, just indelibly in there. So, speaking of songs, uh, when Christy and I were in high school, there was a song being played on the, the radio. I think it was, uh, Did You Ever Have to Make Up Your Mind? Okay? And part of it, uh, one of the stanzas dealt with a young man visiting a girlfriend at her house. And it went like this. And then you get distracted by her older sister when in walks her father and takes you in line and says, better go home, son, and make up your mind. Then you bet you better finally decide and say yes to one and let the other one ride. Now, of course, when we marry, we all have to say yes to one and let all others ride. In other words, go their way. Uh, but I'm just curious, has anybody ever seen this played out? Uh, in your own experience, maybe, or maybe seen it from, from afar. Uh, I'm not sure, but I think maybe we saw something like this. Well, quite a few years ago, we had a couple of young men visit us quite often, sometimes unannounced, often bearing gifts. And they happened to be from another country, and they happened to pay a lot of attention to all three of our daughters. Okay? And... Uh, and after a while, we started to think about this and uh, weren't quite sure. I see Ruth and Esther laughing. Uh, uh, and then we finally figured out that maybe it had something to do with their visas, you know. Uh, but other than the, the fact that the girls weren't interested and that they were in their early to mid-teens at best, uh, at some point we had to help these young men finally decide. Okay, uh, so, uh, you know, life is made up of choices and that unavailable thing called decisions. Uh, by way of review, you know, we're in Matthew 6, and that's all about our relationship to God, our Father. And the first half of Matthew 6 starts off with the decisions we make concerning personal righteousness in areas like uh, giving and praying and fasting. And, and the key there is to avoid the hypocrisy of the religious. And that avoidance is best accomplished when we decide that our ultimate goal, our ultimate objective is pleasing God and looking for our approval from Him and not from people. Uh, now in the second half of Matthew 6 that we're going to start today, Jesus turns to the decisions we make in life in the seemingly routine areas of things like money and possessions, food, clothing, and ambition. In other words, 
what we often today call the world. Okay? Those sorts of things. But it's not like a Dave Ramsey course or anything like that. Rather, Jesus asks us to plumb the depths of one of the most basic decisions of life. What do you and I choose? So, over the next few messages on Sermon on the Mount, Lord willing, we'll look at the decision of choosing between the two. And these are decisions we cannot avoid. We'll either make them intentionally or by default. And as Christ followers, uh, in both our private and public spheres of lives, we're called to make decisions, to choose between two courses, and hopefully in the end, to be different than the world. In the private, he calls us to choose humility and to honor over the hypocrisy of the religious. In the public, he now calls us to choose something other than the materialism and the other goals of those who make no claim to Christ. So today, we're going to start to take a look at this question of choosing between these opposing courses in the world, choosing between the two. Uh, but I've got to make a warning here. Choosing will offend. The Christian life is no place for the timid. By timid, I mean those that want to go along to get along in order to not offend anybody. Now, all of us want to be liked and friendly, other than the Facebook type, more than that. We want to be an attractive light to, to others so that they will hopefully come to Christ, perhaps through our influence. Um, you know, and there's nothing wrong with doing and feeling that way, unless or until it causes us to compromise our convictions and our witness and the truth of the gospel. Put another way, Christians are not called to declare a harsh truth without compassion. But neither are we called to be friendly and to love people into hell. To never call anything wrong out of fear of offending. In short, we're called to speak the truth in love. And these big questions of choosing between the two, choosing necessarily involves a decision. And at the root of that word, scission, from which we get scissors, uh, means a cutting. Uh, and so an incision is cutting into. Precision is cutting with a forethought and with accuracy. Circumcision is cutting around. We'll move on quickly for the comfort of the men. And so a decision is cutting away from something. When you choose between two courses, you necessarily cut away one of the courses. Uh, this means that we will at least, if true to our faith, be living a life that infers to others that we do not agree with their life choices, perhaps with their lifestyles. And this should come as no surprise to those who read their Bibles that this can be an offensive message. In 1 Peter 2, it says that as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up 
a spiritual house to be holy, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, here quoting Isaiah, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. You know, as Christians, we don't have to try to offend. The message of the gospel will offend some. That is, if we are truly messengers of the gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. So the short of this is that if we wish to live a life without offending anyone, you know, then we probably don't want to live the Christian life. Uh, It's like the question of uh, if it ever became a crime to be a Christian, Unlike other countries where it is a crime and they're not terribly concerned about being innocent or proven guilty, if it's ever a crime to be a Christian in the United States, will there be enough evidence to convict us? I don't know why, but my cell phone is playing something. <laughs> I, yeah, these devices. I kept hearing something. and <laughs> It wasn't you, it was me. All right. Um, if we wish to follow and obey Christ, then this passage we're studying now tells us how, by pointing out the decisions that we must make. So we're going to start with a decision between two treasures. And our passage today is Matthew six nineteen through 21, where it says... Do not lay up for yourselves treasures uh, in heaven where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. Then later we'll talk about lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust corrupts and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there will your heart be also. Uh, You know, Jesus states it both negatively and positively. We can take this course or this course. It's clear we have no excuse. Let's be clear here about what we mean by this first thing about not laying up treasures uh, in heaven or on earth. Um, We usually think about money when we talk about this particular verse. Um, But Jesus does not condemn wealth here, no more than he condemns clothing. In fact, he's not saying anything about things here at all, but rather the love of things is what he prohibits. It's not money, but the love of money that is the root of all evil. The preacher Ecclesiastes tests many things uh, to see if they last. He talks about building great structures, working hard, reputation, sex, power, philosophy, mental pleasures. And his conclusion... All is vanity. Now, by vanity or being vain, he doesn't mean they're worthless. It means they are only temporal. They don't last. They don't endure. Secondly, 
Jesus and Scripture in general in no way bans private property or saving for a rainy day or even life insurance. The ant storing in summer in order to have enough in winter is praised in the Proverbs. Paul states that a believer who does not provide for his own is worse than an unbeliever. We are to receive with thanksgiving the things which God richly provides. Next, this passage is not directed solely at people who have or strive to amass wealth. The poor need this exhortation as much as the rich. We all have treasures, all of us. It may just not be money. Because the concept of treasure here is much broader than money or even other types of wealth. You know, while the love of money could rightly be characterized as sin, the concept of treasure includes objects of our love that are totally appropriate. Now, I'm going to say something that might be very difficult to accept or even grasp, but certainly is for me. And first of all, I want to say that uh, I'm not at all disagreeing with Mike's message last week about loyal love for family and friends. He was spot on. In fact, for years I've disagreed with mission organizations who send off couples and, and require them to send their kids to a mission school. And I still think it's unbiblical to separate families unless it is absolutely necessary. However, last week I uh, saw a movie or a kind of a docudrama called The Insanity of God. And perhaps some of you were there. I think you were. And it gave me a little different perspective on our earthly relationships. And this movie, which I highly recommend you see, it is impactful, was all about stories of actual situations where Christians were being persecuted, tortured, and killed for their faith in ways that we cannot, cannot fathom here in the, our, the comfort of America. And the question that they ask in the movie, it's a rather haunting one, is Jesus worth it? Now, I cannot convey to you how much I love Christy and our children. And, and we're at the age now where we have had to watch people younger than, than we are lose a spouse or a, or a child. It's not a pleasant thought for any of us. However, I think what Jesus is saying here is that a treasure can be anything that stops with that is of this life and world only, including good things, like a nice hospitable home, or children, or even a spouse. If you would turn with me to Luke 9, and we're going to wonder at a rather amazing passage here. Uh, I, would, I just want to see if you are as stumped by this as, as I have been in the past. It starts in verse... 57, and this is Jesus going along the road, and someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, count the costs, young man. And to another, Jesus said, follow me. But this man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. 
And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Let me just, you know, kiss my wife and kids goodbye. But Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Ooh, isn't this a little bit like Genesis 22, where we've got Abraham tying up Isaac on the altar and raising the knife above him? Except without resolution. At least we know there that it was a test of faith for Abe and that Isaac was spared. What is Jesus saying about our loved ones here? Now, does Jesus encourage neglect of parents and children and spouse? Is He anti-family? No, no more than He condones child sacrifice. However, does Jesus want our focus, our treasure, to be with Him over even the ones we love and cherish here? And I think that's what he's saying. So if I lose my wife or I lose a child, it's not wrong for me to grieve. Believe me, I will. But if I give up on life, if I find myself without any purpose under his will, I become a recluse and I stop functioning within the body of Christ, when my spouse or my child, or maybe all of them, leave me behind, where was my treasure all along? It was here. Perhaps a better or the best way to view the loss of a loved one is to look forward to the joy of reunion in eternity. Now, the reason we say that your loved ones can be treasures because our relationship in heaven is not going to be anything like it is here on earth. We will not be married, as far as I know, up there. But it will be a reunion nonetheless. It's the attitude towards that thing or that person for which we're living that makes it a treasure. It could be the love of money or maybe honor or status or work or maybe it's total dependence on some certain person here on earth. It could even be as subtle as promotion in a ministry when the focus turns from honoring God to my success in the ministry. It could be praise from good people for your ministry. Jesus here warns against focusing our ambitions, our interests, our hopes on anything that ends in this life. And the teaching of our Master in the Sermon on the Mount has always gotten back to the heart. And here he says, it is our heart that always follows our treasure. The question is, does our heart end up on earth or in heaven? In short, uh, Jesus never condemns being provident or making sensible provision for the future, but rather what he condemns is being covetous like a miser who always wants more. He points to the obvious. The earthly treasures we covet are will be eaten up by moths or destroyed by rust or stolen. You know, in the, old, in the ancient world, nothing was safe because all those things could easily happen. Today, we've got insecticides and we've got security systems and we've got insurance to cover all those things. 
But wealth can still be taken away simply through natural disasters we're seeing on the East Coast right now, through inflation, the whims of the market, financial scams, electronic theft, taxes, and other government confiscation. Now, speaking of which, in this age of government bailouts and handouts and spending money that the government doesn't have simply by printing it up, it's kind of hard to see the truth, a rather cold and hard truth, that there really are no guarantees. There is no entitlement, no constitutional right to a certain standard of living, possessions, health, health care, or even life. We simply have no claim on these things or even a right to wake up tomorrow. You know, there's a story about a, a wealthy and miserly old man who was told by his friends, you know, you really can't take it with you when you go on to the next world. And his somewhat obstinate response was, well, then I just won't go. Yeah. The biblical ex uh, perspective is expressed by Job. When he lost not only his possessions, but his whole family. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's move on now to the positive of laying up treasures in heaven. Now, some have confused this. Uh, to mean that we can achieve our own salvation. We should spend our time earning our salvation by doing good things and that, in that way laying up treasures in heaven. You know, that view not only denies that we're justified by faith only, but it's in context. Look at it. It's clear that Jesus is speaking to those who are already saved, those who have the qualities of the Beatitudes that he's just taught. Uh, if you would turn with me to another rather interesting passage here in Luke 16. And uh, we're going to start at the beginning of that, of that chapter here. This is a parallel to Matthew 6. And there Jesus says to his disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager. And this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be the manager. The manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my manager is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig dishes, and I'm too ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do, so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And so he summoned each of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to that debtor, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. He said to another, and basically he discounted their debts. And here's the amazing thing. Look at verse 8. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. I think that's us, right? We're the sons of light. I say to you, this is even more amazing, 
Make friends for yourself by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, I've heard people on the radio debate about what this means and how confusing it is. But I think what's more important here is what is Jesus trying to tell us? Okay? And the principle here is that whatever God gives you in this world, whether it's money or talent or, or just a, a ministry, take a lesson from this shrewd, unbelieving, unrighteous manager. Use whatever he gives you in a way that when you enter eternity, the people who benefited from your generosity and your ministry will be there to welcome you. Okay? Likewise, Timothy is exhorted by his mentor Paul in 1 Timothy 6 when he says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. One of my favorite uh, passages is Matthew 15. And there Jesus explains to that at the final judgment, he will say to the righteous, I was hungry. And you gave me food. I was thirsty. You gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did you see, we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So, when you help take care of an infant whose mother's in jail, When you serve food at the rescue mission, when you go to Haiti or China or Harlem to feed people and give them the gospel, when you volunteer at the crisis pregnancy center, when you foster or adopt a child, when you teach primary Sunday school, or you wipe little bottoms, you are doing it for Jesus, and you are laying up treasures in heaven. Any pleasure we get from treasures stored up here on earth is just a spit in the bucket compared to the ocean of joy we get from treasures in heaven. Let's take a look at the attitude that's required to lay up treasures in heaven. The key is found in Hebrews 11 uh, where we hear about the great heroes in the hall of faith. And there in verse 13 explains, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. 
These imperfect saints live with one purpose. That is, they walk as seeing him who is invisible. These heroes had the right view of life. They understood that life is just a gust in the wind of eternity. They knew that they were just pilgrims passing through this life towards our everlasting hope. You and I are just children in this life who are in the process of running to the arms of our Heavenly Father. And with that perspective, we will have a right view of our gifts and our possessions. All we have is on loan from Him. And we're just caretakers for a short while. Now, the worldly view is quite different. You know, the pitiful and puny goal of the worldly life can be summed up in he who dies with the most toys wins. Now, how fulfilling is that as a life purpose? Jesus counters that attitude with take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. The Christ follower says, how can I use my money or this intellect or this skill or talent, my joy, my hands, my creativity for the one who gave those things to me? It is to him and him alone that I will give an account for how I use those gifts. Therefore, I must take great care to use those things in a way that will please Him. You know, when I was in the Marine Corps, one of the most enjoyable activities I had was a thing called orienteering. Okay, anybody else ever get to do that? Okay, Larry, Bill. Orienteering involves, you know, you're out in the, in the, in the country and you're given a compass and a topographical map and, you're, and you're, you're told to find points on the ground from your map and your compass. And so you've got to decide whether you're going to go the easy way by the road, which sometimes is faster than going through the swamp, or you're going to take a direct route. And when you choose the latter, you've got to shoot an azimuth, in other words, a compass setting uh, in the direction you're supposed to go to get to your, it's usually a coffee can lid nailed to a tree, you know, that tells you where you're supposed to be. You've got to find that little thing out there somewhere, and you've got to go that direction. And to do that, you, 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 you create intermediate objectives. In other words, you find something you can see, because you can't see the coffee can lid way out there, something you can see, and you focus on that, and you go straight to that. Okay? Uh, and we tend to move toward the object to which we fix our gaze. It's our objective, our goal. In the same way, our lives will tend to move toward or drift to the spot where our treasures are stored because our hearts will simply take us there, whether we realize it or not. That's why Paul tells us in Colossians 3, if you then have been raised with Christ, seek those things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your affections or your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died 
and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Uh, so what? How can we take specific measures to lay up treasures in heaven? I'm just going to suggest a few. This is not a comprehensive list. I'm sure there's many others. But one is to, how about working on Christ-like character while we're here? Okay, the only thing we take to heaven is us, nothing else. So how about if we look at things like the attitude of the Beatitudes of Matthew 5 that he taught just before this, okay? Why don't we become more Christ-like while we have the opportunity? Uh, turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 13, a familiar passage, but one I think is an amazing analogy. And there, starting in verse 11, it deals with... Uh, Faith, hope, and love. And, and the exhortation here is to increase in faith, hope, and love. And there it says, starting in verse 11, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see through a mirror dimly. But then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, we know when now is, but when is then? Well, this is then, okay? What can we do now? Well, he tells us, faith. Hope and love abide. That means they endure. They will last beyond this lifetime. One you've often hear, heard here is to get to know your Creator and your Savior better. Okay? The one that you will see face to face. How do you do that? You read your Bible, right? Okay? You get to know more about Him. And then you talk to Him, you pray to Him, and you learn more about Him. Uh, one we've talked about over this message is use your money and your talents and your gifts uh, that God gave you for things that matter to God. Pray and witness so that others may come to Christ and that they may be, in a sense, treasures in heaven as well. And finally, the toughest one for all of us. You know, Christ died for you and me. We're going to celebrate today. Um, could we die for him? It seems unlikely that it will happen to any of us, but could we sacrifice all, even our loved ones, for him? Is Jesus worth it? I think there is no greater treasure in heaven than those than that awaiting those who have given themselves to Christ. Again, this is not a message about earning salvation. We're not paying the price of admission to heaven. These are temporal activities with eternal consequences. This is laying up treasures in heaven. It all gets down to how I live my life 
that I've been given here in this world. Do I just, I'm born, I come into this world, I do the best that I can and then die? Is what I see around me all there really is? Or is the Word of God true? Am I a child of my Father placed here for a purpose to fulfill that will affect how I spend eternity? We're all just caretakers of a few things, even some very, very good things, even the gifts of love of others and life itself. But honestly, it's foolish for us to cling to those things. They don't control us. We should control them for His glory. And in this way, we lay up treasures in heaven. Why? Just like the saints in Hebrews 11, because we believe in the reality of the glory that awaits us. That is our goal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Father, you are so loving. And you have set before us the great decision. Lord, give us the wisdom, the discernment, the, the courage to lay up our treasures in heaven. To value and appreciate all that you have given us, whether rich or poor. And then use it all for you. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being here in a fellowship of believers who take this seriously, who act these things out. Lord, may we be a light to those around us. May we encourage others to lay up treasures with you as well. We ask all these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand.